trying to follow her wishes as best we can. So I hope you enjoy it. Let me begin by Psalm 34, verses 1 through 8. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. My soul will boast in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called, and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. We're going to sing some hymns together that were favorites. So if you will look in your hymn book, the first one we're doing is Wonderful Grace of Jesus, page 291, and then let Mark take over. Thank you. 
God gave mom the courage to leave her comfortable country community to go to Brookline, Massachusetts to attend what was then known as uh, NEST, New England School of Theology, which moved and became Berkshire Christian College in Lenox, Mass, her sophomore year. She loved her friends, professors, choir, and though she struggled a little bit with academics, she persevered and she obtained a bachelor's degree in theology with an emphasis in early childhood education. And she enthusiastically used that education uh, degree to teach children in Sunday school, kids Bible club, and vacation Bible school all her. While at college, mom was thankful for her mother's prayers. She wrote a poem to her mother that I discovered after her death. With a grateful heart, she said, You met God in the morning in great concern for me. For you knew my every weakness and my future you could see. You wanted me to follow him and do his will each day. You prayed in deepest earnestly to keep me in his way. And maybe, Mom, if you hadn't thought to kneel that time in prayer, your daughter would have probably gone very much astray. But your prayers were faithful, steady, strong, and true. You tarried much with Jesus. That's all that you could do. How kind you stop the task of your so busy day and whisper, oh, please, Jesus, speak to her today. Reminder, there are those lost and must to you be one. Reminder, there's much work to do before you are to come. Well, Mom, your prayer was answered. And thank God I can say, if it hadn't been for my Christian mom, I would not be here today. I, too, am thankful for my Granny Smith's prayers and for my mother's prayers all my life. So this pattern of prayer for children and grandchildren and most of you continues throughout her life. Mom and Dad remembered most all of you who are here by name and prayer day after day. My dad would go out and walk for seven miles, and he had his list that he prayed to by name of the whole family and others. It was at college that God directed Mom's steps to love and marry her husband, Pastor Bob Hess. She had faith to plan a wedding during her senior year of college. And two weeks after her graduation, they had their wedding up here at the Avon Christian Church here in Dover, Fox Park. Uh, she began her support of Dad in this year um, as he continued to go to college. She needed to support him through his final year. And then she continued to support him through 62 years of marriage and 58 in pastoral ministry full-time. Mom didn't think she was a very good pastor's wife. She didn't play the piano, which was the first question they'd ask the first as you walk into the church. Did you play the piano? No. She didn't like to manage or direct any ministry, but she was willing to fill any role of service, hospitality, visitation, secretarial, even church janitor, if it would help her husband go to church. She especially loved singing. We all know that. In the choir, the worship team, special music, but especially the duets of Dad. When Dad accepted a position in Prophetstown, Illinois, they decided to purchase their first house instead of living in the parsonage. The house had been in foreclosure, so it was owned by the bank, so they did a silent auction where people put in their bids, and no one knew what the other bids were. Mom had the idea of bidding a Bible verse, Romans 8.28. So which you probably all know, so if you know it, say it with me. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So the bid was two for the New Testament, six for the sixth book, eight for the chapter, and 28 for the verse. $26,828. Yes, that bought a 1,600-square-foot split-level house in northwestern Illinois in the 70s. Yes. So this is the same house that my cousins, Billy and Dwight, came to. And it leads me to a side note about Mom's love for laughter. I don't know if you guys remember this. But we watched a Peter Sellers movie called The Party. 
and we laughed for two hours straight. Do you remember it? After that, all we had to say to each other was, Barbie, nom nom. And we'd be rolling on the floor. I don't know if you guys have seen that. It's really not that funny. I watched it later. It wasn't that funny, but man, we were, we were into it. Her favorite memories often involved game nights and comedy movies she shared with friends. And sometimes she would have such a lack of control, especially with uh, Bob's mother, um, that it sent her to the bathroom. And, and she'd come back for more. So the house investment, it grew in value over the years. And it supported mom and dad until the final years. So just the blessing of the Lord. One F, um, it also allowed them to build a house in Alton Bay uh, when our kids were young. They went to minister there when Elizabeth and Aaron were like age two through eight, somewhere in there. For about five years. Um, and so they were able to spend a lot of special time with our kids there. I'll share a quick story that Elizabeth gave me. It's somewhat related to the last one. Elizabeth wrote, in the game of Monopoly Junior, instead of going to jail, you go to the bathroom. Well, one afternoon in Alton Bay, you see where this is going, Nana and I, Elizabeth said, were playing a game of Monopoly Junior, just the two of us, and as luck would have it, we both kept landing on go to the bathroom, over and over. Nana thought this was hilarious and couldn't stop laughing and making comments like, Apparently, we're both having some serious health issues today. So my parents hoped that they would continue to have those sorts of memories with my kids. They hoped that Alton Bay would be their final destination. And that they would be at least close to one set of grandkids the rest of their lives. But that wasn't God's plan. I could recount many such disappointments along the journey of their lives. You know what my dad would say about that. Disappointment, his appointment. Change one letter and I see that the sorting of my purpose is God's better choice for me. And if you don't know the rest of the poem, see me later on the copy. So by faith, they sold their beautiful custom-built house in Alton Bay, and they moved on to Attleboro, Massachusetts, where they joined with another wonderful church family for seven more years of ministry. We're recording this service today because people that mom and dad touched throughout their lives are all over the country, if not even around the world today. And we want them to be able to share in this if possible. Um, so we will be posting it on our church website uh, for later viewing. I could share many testimonies of people who've been touched by their ministry. But uh, let me just read one from a man in Attleboro. Yes, that disappointing destination that led to many changed lives. After Dad's death, this man wrote, I have lost a pastor, a mentor, and a good friend. Pastor Bob taught me a deeper understanding of love and compassion to others through Christ. I loved the men's group Bible study that Pastor Bob had every Friday night. He would always have us pray before and after the meeting. We would study from the Bible on how to be better men, better friends, and to treat our wives and loved ones better through Christ. He would always ask me how I was doing and ask to pray with me. And he always put his arms around me and hugged me to show his affection and love. After Mom's passing, this man wrote, Dear Rhonda, I'm so very, very sorry. I feel two large empty spaces in my heart. My sadness is deep. Thank God we have our salvation through Jesus Christ. Your mom came to my home many times, and as I was working at the church constantly, your mother served me lunch many days. She was so kind and loving and compassionate with everyone at the church. She always had a smile on her face and a wonderful attitude toward life. Very loving toward your father. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 says that God's power is made perfect in weakness. Starting in the mid-30s, mom began to suffer from uh, clinical depression. She struggled from sadness, anxiety, and loneliness, and I'm sure they were amplified by the many moves that they made. Yet she continued in faith, 
sometimes with lament. If you're not familiar with lament, I'm going to read you one. She underlined this verse in the Psalms and many like it. Psalm 55, 17 through 18 says, Evening, morning, and noon, I cry out in distress, and he hears my voice. He ransoms me unharmed from the battle waged against me. In one of her poems, she lays out her complaint about moving, separation from her children, and her loneliness. But she resolves the pain in her heart by taking it to Jesus in prayer. She says, nobody knows the pain I feel when my world, my whole world starts to reel. Nobody but Jesus feels my pain and gets me back to living again. Nobody but Jesus. Mom began having memory issues while they lived in Attleboro, and it became especially apparent to me when she began to pack to move. Mom was a professional at packing and organizing. They moved more than 20 times. In this instance, she, we were in the living room of their, their home, and she kept putting things into boxes and then taking them out again. She couldn't remember from one minute to the next what she had put in the box, and so she had to check it again. So put it in and pull it out again. So that's when we both realized that something was terribly wrong. And we sat together on the floor and with the boxes, and the debris was moving, and we just cried together. Mom was shortly afterwards diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And about the same time, Dad was diagnosed with Parkinson's. And the long journey of about 12 years with both of those illnesses began. I had the great privilege of being fairly new and going through these last years with them. I say privilege because I saw how God helped them and how their faith in the Lord sustained them until the end of their lives. There's not time to tell the challenges that they experienced during their four years at Furman Homes, which included the COVID pandemic. I thought the pain of 13 months of physical separation from my mom would send my dad into a deep depression. They were separated by just 100 yards between the buildings, but my dad could not touch my mom for 13 months. But he found his purpose, ministering through mom, whether it was by phone or through a window, and to others who were there through scripture, prayer, and singing hymns. When we sang with mom, she remembered the words of the hymns better than we did. And God allowed mom to continue to use her gift of prayer, even when she could no longer recognize who I was or put full sentences together. She would pray for her loved ones, sometimes by name, asking that they would be saved, that they would abide in Christ, and that they would be good witnesses to others. Now, I must admit, Sometimes she included those who had already died, but arguably that may still have been properly. Depends on your theology. <laughs> Mom sang with us during our last few visits together. Have thine own way, Lord, and trust and obey. In her final years, she also lamented. During one visit, she kept saying, How long? How long? Four weeks after my dad died, and we did not tell her that he died because she couldn't hold on to that memory we saw. Four weeks after he died, you can hear her say in the midst of a bunch of unintelligible words, I miss my husband. I didn't understand what she said when she said it. I didn't get it. But when I played the recording later, I heard it. Two weeks later, she passed away. He said, Somehow, Mom wrote these words in a poem that's included in your bulletin. Don't weep for me, 
and Christ to hold you close unto his breast until the day when he shall come and change this frame to be just like him. No tears for me. I rest secure of his return and life forever with him to be. I'm done with heartache, pain, and fears. He's taken all the dread and tears till I'm united with him and friends and loved ones who through the years have made him Lord of all. My mother's greatest desire and prayer was that her loved ones would trust in Jesus and Jesus alone for their salvation and be prepared to live eternally with him on the day when Jesus returns. Jesus is coming soon. And there's only one way to heaven. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I'm going to sing a song uh, that my mom requested to be sung over. It's a privilege to be here with you all, uh, opening up the Word of God. My name is Neil Murphy. I'm Elizabeth's husband, Elizabeth, the daughter of Rhonda and Lloyd. And uh, I had the privilege of speaking at Pastor Bob Head's funeral, and, and here I am. And it's a real privilege to be here speaking at Donna Head's memorial service. And so we heard from Rhonda just minutes ago, it was Donna Hatt's conviction that Jesus would come back, that Jesus would return. And it could happen any moment. It could happen now. It could happen now. It could happen now. You get the idea. It could happen at any time. He had come to earth once as a suffering savior, and he was going to come back as a conqueror, a conqueror, a victorious conqueror, to take back the world which rightly belongs to him and to take his people to be with him forever. And this motivated Donahat in life. It motivated her actions, it motivated her words. It was something that gave her hope. She thought very often about how Jesus was going to come back again. And even in the depths of her Alzheimer's, she was asking, how long? How long until Jesus comes? And this is what we're going to focus on for some moments right now. Um, a 
of scripture that talks about Jesus' second coming is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. Um, I invite you to turn there if you'd like to. If you have a Bible app on your phone, you can use that. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. And the purpose of this passage isn't just to talk about how Jesus is coming back a second time. It's also to give Christians hope and encouragement in the face of death. There's much to encourage believers in this passage. Much to encourage us. And we know death is never an easy thing. We know that right now in this place. And many of us have probably known it at other points in our lives as we've said goodbye or maybe even never got to say goodbye to certain people in our lives who we love dearly. Death is never an easy thing. And so where is the hope when someone dies? Where is the hope? Is there hope? Well, this passage answers that in a tremendous way. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18. And so in verse 13, Paul says, the Apostle Paul, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Now, 1 Thessalonians is a, a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica, in Greece. And in verse 13, Paul is saying to the Thessalonian Christians that he didn't want them to be uninformed. He didn't want them to not know about what happens to people who fall asleep. Now, fall asleep, what does that mean? People who fall asleep, is he talking about people taking a nap, going to sleep for the night? No, he's talking about people who are dead. The New Testament actually uses the term sleep or being asleep in order to describe death. We see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20, where Paul says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. So in that text, he's talking about how Jesus was the first one to come back from the dead, and he's the firstfruits, the first one of those who have fallen asleep that will come back to life through him. And then in John chapter 11, verse 11, another wonderful passage of Scripture where the resurrection is shown, uh, although this time it's Jesus raising a human being to life, a temporary resurrection before his resurrection, he brings Lazarus back to life. And so in that particular verse, before he brings Lazarus back to life, it says, after saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. So right there we have another example where the, the idea of sleep is used of somebody who's dead. Lazarus is dead, but Jesus says he's going to bring him back to life. He's just sleeping. He's going to wake him up. Now, Christians have different views on the meaning of the word sleep, of, on this idea of being asleep. Some people believe uh, those who are dead really are just sleeping with Jesus. They're with Jesus, but they're asleep with him. And this is called soul sleep. It's the Advent Christian view. It's the view that Pastor Bob and Donna both had. Some Christians believe that that's just a metaphorical thing, and those who are with Jesus right now are, are awake with him. They're not asleep. Asleep is just a metaphor, basically. There's room for both views among Christians. We can agree to disagree on that. The point being, though, is that those who have died and belong to Jesus are not dead forever. They're not dead forever. They will come back to life. They will wake up. And when you think about the idea of being asleep, it carries with it the idea that you're going to wake up from that sleep, that you're not asleep forever. And Paul wants the Thessalonian Christians to know about this. He wants them to be informed. And he tells them why. So they might not grieve as those who have no hope. Now the Thessalonian Christians, they must have had some doubts. What happens when people die? We've lost some people. We've said goodbye to people in our congregation. What happens to them? Where do they go? What's going to happen? Are we going to see them again? They had probably seen people in their church die. We know that the, the Thessalonian church was suffering a lot of persecution. It's possible that some of them had even been killed for following Jesus. And so they want to know what happens. And Paul wants to, he wants to tell them. He wants them to be informed so that they might not grieve as those who have no hope. 
Now notice here that Paul doesn't say he's telling them so that they might not grieve. That's important. They can and will grieve. They will grieve. Grief is it's part of life. It's, it's what we experience when people we love die. It's appropriate and it's even necessary to grieve. But it's grief which has hope. It's hopeful grief. It's not hopeless grief. The Thessalonian Christians lived in a pagan culture where people had the attitude that I live for the present and when I die, that's the end. I'm dead. It's the end. There's no afterlife. Some of them believed in an afterlife. But their priority was on the present life. Does that sound familiar? It should, because that's the view of most people in our culture today. We're actually very similar nowadays. Many people believe that death is the end. They have no interest in the idea of an afterlife, of, of the concept of life beyond death. They're not interested in that. Their idea, their, their thinking is that you only live once, and once you die, that's the end. There's no life beyond death. So live for the moment. And many people do. And when you die, by the way, you just decompose in the ground. Your body just disintegrates. If, if you were buried bodily, if you're not cremated. Uh, and you become part of a circle of life, so to speak. Like the song in the Lion King. Uh, which, by the way... That's what that song is communicating in that movie. <laughs> the idea that animals die, and they decompose, and they become food for the plants, and then the gazelles eat the plants, and then the lions eat the gazelles, and, and then the cycle just repeats itself. That's the circle of life. It's actually quite a depressing idea when you think about it. It is part of the way that nature works, right? But it's The idea, though, that many people think about when they think about death is that death is just the end, and, and that's what happens to us. And maybe some of you sitting here think this way. I, I don't know. I'm not going to assume that everyone in this room is a follower of Christ. And if you do, I'd like you to think for a moment here, where is the hope in that? If death is the end, if there is no life beyond death, where is the hope? Where is your hope? Not to play the what-if game, but seriously, think about it. What if you really do never get to see people you love who have died ever again? What if they're just gone forever and we're never going to see them again? What if it's truly the end when you die? What if you die before you want to die? What if you die before you've had the chance to do everything that you wanted to do to knock everything off your bucket list? Where's the hope in that? I don't know about you, but that seems pretty hopeless to me. Seems pretty hopeless to me. And maybe you're content with that, but I'm not. I'm not content with that. Uh, and you might say it's wishful thinking on my part. You might say, well, you just want an afterlife, so you choose to believe in one, even though there's no evidence. So you're just choosing what you want, basically. Maybe. But I have a feeling, if you're truly honest with yourself, you want there to be life beyond death. There's a deep longing in us for that. Because this life can be very miserable and hard. And many people die without getting to live anything close to the types of lives that we can live here in the United States. Many people live their whole lives in poverty. Many children die from malnutrition and starvation around the world every single day. Where's the hope for them? And I want to invite you to consider another view. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, right here, we've been looking, we see hope in the face of death. Christians have much to hope in, and it's all based on Jesus. And we're given several truths in this passage to encourage us as we grieve with hope for those who have died. The first encouragement is that when Jesus comes back, followers of his who are dead will come back to life. So people who follow Jesus in life, who are dead, are going to come back with him when he comes back. So in verse 14, Paul says, For since we believe 
that Jesus died and rose again, even though, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Now, the first part of this verse is key. Notice this. It says that Jesus dying and coming back again is actually the foundation, the basis for anyone to have life after death. Jesus is the only reason why people can live after they've died. In Jesus, God became human. He took on human flesh. He lived among human beings. He showed them who God was in his actions, his words, his teaching. But the religious leaders, they wanted to murder him because they believed he was lying when he said that he was God. So they devised a plot to kill him. They eventually had him arrested. He was mocked, he was beaten, he was dragged through the streets of Jerusalem. And then he was executed on a Roman cross. And in the saddest day in, in history, since God has created the universe, God died on that day. God himself died on the cross. But Jesus, being God, he didn't stay dead. He didn't stay dead three days later. He came back to life. And through his return to life, death was defeated. Death was defeated. It had no power over him. Jesus was the first and only person to bring himself back to life. And there's tons of historical and logical evidence for this. I won't touch on any of it now, but if you're curious about that, I invite you to read a book called Your Verdict on the Empty Tomb by Val Breed, which does an excellent job. It's not that long. It's only about 72 pages or so. It does an excellent job laying out the historical, logical reasons for believing Jesus came back from the dead. And everything hinges on the resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus didn't come back from the dead, he was a liar. And we shouldn't take anything he said seriously. If he did come back from the dead, then my goodness, he's God. And he has power over death. Amen? Amen. And so our being able to, to die and come back to life is based only on Christ himself. There's no other way. Without Jesus, we have no hope of life beyond death. Because we certainly can't bring ourselves back from the dead. Nobody's been able to pull it off up to this point. Not that I've heard of, anyway. Only Jesus has the power to do it. So if you haven't trusted in Jesus, then you don't have access to this power to come back from the dead, to live forever with God, the one who made you and who made this whole universe. And when Jesus comes back a second time, he'll come as a conqueror and a judge. He'll hold us accountable for how we lived our lives here on earth. We'll all have to stand before him. And for those of us in Christ, while that might be, it should be nerve-wracking in a sense, if we are in Christ, we're covered by his righteousness and all of our sins will not be held against us on that day. Because all of us are in, have been enemies of God. All of us have rebelled against him. We've turned our backs on him. We have gone our own way. We maybe even have refused to believe that he exists. And Jesus died in order to forgive his enemies. To forgive us. He died in order to make his enemies, his friends. And so if you're not a follower of Jesus, he wants to make you his friend as well. He doesn't want you to stay an enemy. So will you choose to remain his enemy, or will you accept his sacrifice on your behalf in order to forgive you and give you new life? Will you turn to him and accept his sacrifice? Because it's only in Jesus that we can live forever with God. There's no other way. And all of us need to be reminded of this, because even if you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Christ, it's only in Christ that we have this hope, and those around us who don't know it are going to perish unless they do. And so we tell them the good news of Christ out of love for them. 
because we don't want to see them perish. We share with them who Jesus is and what he has done for us. It's true that God is the one who does the converting. We don't do the conversion. God is the only one that can work in someone's heart. But we need to tell them we've been sent with a message. And I need to say this to myself as much as to anybody else, because I need this reminder too. If you are a Christian, there's great encouragement in verse 14. To go back to verse 14. Since we believe Jesus died and rose again, in the same way God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep through Jesus. So since we believe Jesus died and came back to life, in the same way that Jesus came back to life, God is going to bring those who have died in Christ back to life when he comes back a second time. They're going to come with him. We will get to see them again. And so that means Donna Hatton. That means Pastor Bob Hatton. That means many people we can think of who we know knew Christ in their lives here on earth. We will get to see them again. They will come back with him a second time when he comes back. So because of Jesus, we will get to see people we love again who died in Christ. And even get to live with them and God forever, all of us together. This is not the end. Death is not the end. When Jesus comes back, followers of Jesus who are dead will come back to life. So that's one encouragement we see here in this passage. There's another major encouragement here. When Jesus comes back, Christians dead and alive will all greet him together and live forever with him. So Paul, Paul tells us what Jesus' second coming will be like in this passage. Skipping a little ahead to verse 16, he says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So when Jesus comes back, there will be a cry of command, the voice of an archangel, and the sound of the trumpet of God. You think about those three phrases. Cry of command, sound of the trumpet of God, voice of an archangel, reverse order on the second two. Those are all really loud, powerful things, right? Cry of command, that sounds pretty loud. Think about like a drill sergeant yelling during boot camp. Voice of an archangel, I'm not sure what that sounds like, but I'm sure it's pretty powerful. Uh, every time people in the Bible encounter angels, they fall flat on their face because they don't want to be killed, because they realize that this being that I've never seen the likes of before could kill me right now. So voice of an archangel, very powerful. And trumpet of God, well, trumpets are loud instruments, right? Have you ever heard a trumpet? In person, you know it's a pretty loud instrument. You don't even need to necessarily mic it most of the time because it's just loud on its own. I'm sure God's is no exception. Probably a lot louder than any trumpet we have here on earth. So loud, obvious, powerful, Jesus coming back. Yeah, it's not going to be a quiet, discreet thing. And Matthew 24, verse 30 echoes this idea. It says... Then will appear, this is Jesus talking, then there will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So that echoes a similar idea. There's power, there's great glory. Notice too, all the tribes of the earth are mourning. Why are they mourning? Well, because they, they didn't really believe that Jesus was God and that he was going to come back, and he was going to hold them accountable. But there's going to be power and great glory. So the point here is that Jesus' second coming will be powerful, it will be loud, it will be seen by everybody. You won't need to check your phone. You won't need to turn on the TV. It'll be obvious. Jesus will come from heaven and make himself obvious. And since he's coming as a conqueror, that, that makes a lot of sense. 
And scripture tells us it could be at any time. And Dawn had believed this very strongly. She knew that Jesus could come back at any time. Jesus says in Matthew 24, verse 36, but concerning that day and hour, meaning the day and hour of his second coming, no one knows. No one knows. Not even the angel of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. It will be unexpected and sudden, like a thief in the night. That second sentence is in my own words. But Jesus himself is saying here that nobody knows. The Father knows. And of course, there's a theological thing here. Well, why Jesus is saying he doesn't even know? Well, he does now um, on earth. The debate is that he didn't while he was in human flesh here on earth. But he knows now. But we don't. We don't know when it's going to happen. We don't know when Jesus is coming back. And it's going to be sudden. So for those who have turned to Jesus, this is going to be a joyous occasion. This is something we look forward to. And to return to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul makes it clear in verse 15 that there are those who are alive, that those who are alive when Jesus comes back aren't actually at an advantage over those who are dead. So verse 15 says, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So God has revealed to Paul and his team that those who are alive when Jesus comes back will not meet him before those who are dead. So there isn't actually going to be an advantage to being alive when Jesus comes back a second time. It doesn't mean you're going to get some special privilege that people who are dead aren't going to get. In fact, at the end of verse 16, we're told that the dead in Christ will rise first. So the dead are going to come back to life first, and then, in verse 17, we're told, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. So at that point, the dead in Christ will come back to life. We will all, all followers of Christ, will meet together in the clouds, in the air, how that's going to work visibly with the curvature of the earth and the size of the earth, I do not know. But God is God. He'll find a way to make it work that everyone will see that meeting happening in the sky. Publicly, visibly, powerfully, loudly, it will be obvious to everybody. It will be obvious to everyone. And I was thinking about this idea, too, that we all meet Jesus together. What does it say if all of us get to meet Jesus together like that, the dead and the living? Why does Jesus want that to happen? Because this is a whole passage of Scripture talking about this. This is important. Paul spent ink telling us about this. That's how important this is. It's in God's Word. What does it say? Think about it. It's saying that Jesus loves us so much he wants us to be there when he comes again. He's saying to everybody, this is my family. These are my people. I want them all to meet me as I'm coming as a conqueror to take back my creation that is rightfully mine. This is my family. He wants everybody to see that where it is. It's a really powerful, encouraging thing. And from this point on, from that point on, we'll always be with the Lord. This is almost like a footnote here. It's just a small phrase. We'll always be with the Lord. Just because it's a, a small phrase doesn't mean it's less important. We'll live with God forever in his new heavens and new earth. Forever. With God and with all of those who followed him. A place where there will be no more sorrow. No more death. No more depression, no more Alzheimer's. No more of any of that. A beautiful thing, living forever with God in that place. 
And so when Jesus comes back, those who are dead in Christ will come back to life. And all Christians will greet him together and live forever with him. In verse 18, Paul says, Therefore, encourage one another with these words. There is much encouragement here. So Paul's inference, his conclusion, is that we should encourage one another with these words. That Jesus is coming back. That those who have died in Christ, we will see them again. We will all greet, we will all greet him together in the heavens, in the clouds, visibly, powerfully. We can hope in that. So are you encouraged? Are you encouraged? Are you looking forward to the day when Jesus returns? Are you asking, like Donna Het did, how long? Has it changed how you live your life here and now? Has it changed the way you talk to people? Has it changed your priorities, the things that you consider important? Are you hopeful that you'll see other Christians again? Are you looking forward to that? My hope and prayer is that life gone ahead, and I say this and pray this for myself as much as for any of us, all of us will find our encouragement and our hope in Jesus coming back. That's my hope and prayer. When we meet our Creator face to face and we see her, Pastor Bob, and many other people, because Jesus is coming back, and so are his people. Let's pray. Lord, I pray you would encourage us. You would help us to hope in the truth that you are coming back again. Help us to live knowing it could happen at any moment. At any moment. Lord, help us to look forward to the day where we will meet you Help us to look forward to the day, the day where we will live with you forever. And we won't just do it as individuals. We will be with many people. We will be with people we know. We'll be with people we don't know. There will be billions of people in heaven, Lord. Help us to look forward to that. May it change how we live our lives in the here and now. May it change our outlook. May it give us hope, Lord. May it encourage us. Jesus, thank you. We pray all of this in your powerful and beautiful name.
going to join us following after I'm done talking uh, for a reception in the fellowship hall. Ice cream and cookies will be served in honor of the Het family. Passion, many of you probably already know this, they have a passion for desserts, and so we'll be serving dessert. So hear these words from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and present us with you. Indeed, everything is for your benefit, so that grace extended through more and more people may cause thanksgiving to increase to God's glory. Therefore, we do not give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Let's pray one last time. Father, may we focus on the unseen. May we focus on the eternal. May we know, Lord, that you are real. We can trust you. You are with us. If we have trusted you, Lord, and may we hope again in Jesus in your second coming. May it motivate us, may it change us, may it shape us. Like John Ahead, Lord, pray many times. I pray for all of us that we would abide in you, that we would trust you, abide in you, and that we would tell others of your good news and the great hope that you have given us. Jesus, we love you, we thank you, and we bless your name and pray all of us in your name. Amen. You are dismissed.